A census taker once tried to test me, so I complied because doing the census is important. Census 2020, participate. Right. And then after my information was entered in the system, then I ate his kidneys with a nice Mountain Dew Baja blast. Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or TV adaptation. This is the start of season three. Yeah, series three. This is the is first really? episode. Yeah. So, oh my God. Yeah, we ended season two with our first TV review at 112263. Oh my that, God. That two parter. Yeah. We're in season three. Yeah. Which means we're on episode. 21? One. Oh my no, 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 22, because the oh 11, 20, 20, that... Oh my gosh, you're right, we had a two-parter. Yeah. Oh my god, well, hey, cheers to us. I'm literally pouring myself a glass of wine right now. Cheers. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't count if you drink a whole... Bottle? Don't bottle. give me away. No, but, well, if you put it all into one glass, it's still just one glass of wine, so... Right. That's why you get big wine glasses, so you can... Say that, oh, I just had a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. But you have a nice Pinot Gris, uh, cupcake brand. (laughs) Cupcake, they're cheap, but. Ralph's, yeah, Ralph's (laughs) finest. Mm. Yum. Yeah, well, cheers to us. Welcome to Series 3. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert, pronouns he, him. I'm Laura, the literature expert, pronouns she, her. You bet. And today, Boy, we're coming right out of the gates in season three with a barn burner. I think we're covering the most influential movie since probably The Shining back in season one. I think I heard census 2020. Yeah, well, hey, going back (laughs) to that. Another reminder. Another reminder to your census. Anyway, Uh, since. Since, yeah, The Shining. This is probably the most influential movie, would you say? I'm not as well versed in movie milestones, but... But like a pop culture, in terms of just pop culture. Honestly, I, I still don't, wouldn't even know. You're the film expert. I, can't, I I truly could not make that statement comfortably. I know, but I think... Because th- I, I just have no frame of reference. Right, well, this movie and The Shining, they just transcend, I think, their medium. Are you saying most influential films? thriller no film film since the The shining Shining. that's which is a 20 year gap about more than 20 uh 11 11 because shining was 80 oh i thought it came out in 1975 must be thinking of the rocky horror Horror picture show oh or you're (laughs) thinking of uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest (laughs) silence of the lambs the most influential movie since the rocky horror picture show you got your quote (laughs) yeah that's My on soundbite. Yeah, that's on the poster. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Laura gave it away. But today we are covering the Silence of the Lambs. Oh, I was gonna do a joke where I said, "Of the Lambs." Oh, because <laughs> you had a silence before that, and I'm explaining it to the listener who couldn't see you pause and then say, "Of the Lambs," but, but they could hear me pause. Right. Which was the joke. But to them, they probably thought either their phone was glitching out or they accidentally pressed pause. They didn't, they couldn't see you pausing. Maybe I should have said the of the lambs, since that is technically the title. There is a the. 
This is prime content. I'm keeping this all in. But what a film. You you know it. Even if you haven't seen it, you've seen it. It's... If you've seen The Office, you know it. <laughs> right. Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was saying of this movie being so influential. I think most people know that line of, I ate his liver with a nice fava beans and a Chianti. Chianti. Yeah, right. side oh, of Chianti. Great. Yeah, I already messed up the quote. But every, everyone knows that. Yeah, which was Anthony Hopkins. Uh, he suggested that he do that. That wasn't in the original that. script. That's right. Yeah, so. Silence of the Lambs. The most influential movie since The Office. Parodied it. Lots. <laughs> 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 Mm. That's a big glass of wine. <laughs> that's a big, that's a hefty glass of wine. Wow. Oh, no. Five minutes in. Um, okay. We have a lot to talk about. The movie and the book are both excellent, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah. And the movie follows the book pretty, pretty closely. It's mm-hmm. pretty much ripped straight from the book, kind of like how No Country was, where yeah. it was just a condensed version of the book with some lines uh, taken verbatim Mm -hmm. straight from the text. But that's not to say that the script for the movie isn't incredible as well. Ted Talley, who adapted the script, he deserved that Oscar. And this is the first of a lot of Oscar talk we're going to have for this episode because this movie was one of three movies that have won the big five, which Mm -hmm. is best screenplay, best actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Picture. Incredible. Yeah, so we've already covered one movie that's won the Big Five on this podcast. Do you remember what it was? Don't tell me. I'll give you a hint. I've already mentioned it on this podcast. The Shining? No. Oh. Uh, the, one Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest? Yep. Ding, ding, ding. I did it! Yeah. And then the only other movie that's won the Big Five is It Happened One Night. In 1934, that won the Big Five. But That's so weird. Yeah, but that that and then Silence of the Lambs in 1991 has been the latest movie to win the Big Five. No other movie has won That's it since. Yeah, especially considering the existence of Call Me by Your Name and If Beale Street Could Talk and the both those movies that you time. just mentioned just only won one Oscar. Uh, uh, Call Me by Your Name was adapted screenplay and if bill street could talk was regina king for best supporting so that's so crazy yeah wow and anyways (laughs) back to the pod so laura how about you give your brief history with the silence of the lambs go sure i have a very short personal journey with the story i only read the book for the podcast and I was ha- I was very pleased, and I remember I saw the movie on a bad date, <laughs> uh, which makes me think that I don't remember it very well, just because I was very focused on not having the date advance. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't. I slightly remembered the movie. I kind of remembered I liked it, but I was really happy to rewatch it, especially after reading the book, and I loved it this time around and i'm going to talk about why i love it later but that's about it for me how about you yeah well this movie kind of it was such a cultural phenomenon 
that even when I was a kid, my parents made an effort not to, to show me stuff like this mm-hmm. uh, at such a young age. But good choice, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, but they couldn't help the constant pop culture references and spoofs that mm-hmm. you know was so prevalent, especially in the early two thousands when I was you know just turned six and I was starting to you know watch TV more and ask more questions about things and like what's that? What's this? Mm-hmm. Again, Where do my come from? yeah, right. <laughs> Which I still don't know. How do the storks fly all that way? Don't tell him. It's really cute how naive he is. If you know where babies <laughs> come from, please email me at filmaslitpod. <laughs> I'm screening those emails. You're never getting that message. Uh, if you know the password to filmaslitpod, I don't know how email accounts work either. Does, are the passwords public? Anyways, so... <laughs> I... I remember just being so fascinated and seeing so many images of this movie, you know, at six, seven, eight, nine, and just wondering what it was. And my parents, my mom at least, I remember asking her one evening about this movie because I saw the clip, you know, the famous clip of Anthony Hopkins <laughs> delivering the. Yeah. That one? <laughs> yes. The one that I'm uh, Right. Oh, you're a pro. I remember seeing that <laughs> clip and I, I don't remember the context or, you know, what I was watching, but I asked my mom, what, what's that about? And she was telling me all about the Silence of the Lambs and how it was so creepy and how it was about a serial killer who eight people, but who was helping out another current case. And it was such a cool concept. And, you know, my mom, this is not the type of movie that my mom likes, but she still, I could see the reverence in in her eyes, the way she was talking about the movie, that even though it was something that scared her personally, she still recognized it as a great movie. So did my dad, so Mm -hmm. did my brothers who saw it. So... By the time I finally got around to seeing this movie, which was probably in seventh grade on cable. Wow. Which, yeah, because uh, the first time I saw it, yeah, it was a cable, so censored, fully mm-hmm. censored, and I didn't see the actual thing. I had felt like I had already seen the movie because of just, you know, seeing it in pop culture, and mm-hmm. I got interested in film at an early age, so I did some research on it. And yeah, I saw about three-fourths of it on TV, and I had this curse where I kept on, it kept on showing up on TV, like on TNT or AMC, one of those mm-hmm. channels, and I kept on catching glimpses of it here and there. And then I finally had to watch it from start to finish, uncensored, the theatrical version for Screenwriting 2 mm-hmm. class. We were studying... In college? Yeah, in college, right, at, at BU. And we were studying the efficiency of scripts, about how oh, yeah. to you know keep the momentum going. And they brought up Ted Talley's adaptation of Thomas Harris's novel, Sounds of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. And of course, I entered that project being like, okay, I've seen Sounds of the Lambs a bunch of times. I, you know, I know it's a great movie, but then to watch it start to finish uncensored, it kind of was like, wow, no, I can know this movie shot for shot and it's still incredible. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I'd, I remember I had to watch it a couple times for different classes throughout BU. It's just mm-hmm. such a famous, well-done movie that, mm-hmm. 
yeah, it, it just applies to all different types of filmmaking when you're at in film school. You know, you can learn about cinematography and Tak Fujimoto, he was a cinematographer, how he framed the story. You can learn about it from, you know, editing, as I said, writing, acting, the whole the whole nine. So right. yeah, it's the big five. Yeah, right, the big five. The it won the big five Oscars. So yeah, it, it's one of those movies that despite the content, despite how it's about two murderers mm-hmm. who do some crazy twisted stuff to people, it's still so rewatchable and fun, mm-hmm. honestly. Oh, Both yeah. from just, you know, it's technical proficiency. So you watch it and marvel at just how every single department, you know, from background actors to production to sound mm-hmm. to score, it's just all firing on all cylinders. So... Yeah, uh, it never gets old. One of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised I haven't read the book by now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I haven't, um, being such a fan of you know, the character of Hannibal Lecter. But mm-hmm. yeah, I had a great time reading it. It's very close to yeah. the movie, as we'll say. And not to say that Ted Talley didn't deserve his Oscar win. But, I mean, he owes everything to Thomas Harris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole, that whole trophy. I mean, Ted Talley, he, he made sure that his script moved at a, at a good clip. But, I mean, Thomas Harris, like, yeah. he deserved an Oscar, too, for it being so similar. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, okay. So, that's my journey. We, we both love it. But now, how we're going to structure this, we're going to go character by character, right? Yeah, I think that that's a good way to structure it just because as much as the plot line is important, I think that the theme is really about transformation and how transformation throughout your life sort of looks different for different people. Right. So, I, yeah, I think it's it's important to look at each character. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And how about we start with good old yeah. Jodie Foster. Isn't she great? Oh my gosh. She's good, she ain't she? She is <laughs> incredible. I think the way that she interprets the character from the book is absolutely spot on. Right. Like, I, something that I really, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into a lot in this episode is how represented I feel by her character as mm-hmm. a female who has held jobs in male-dominated careers. It's so incredible to watch that on screen and say, oh my god, I've been there, and I really wish I had reacted in the way that she had reacted. You know, like, and I, it's funny because I, I think it's appropriate that I didn't see this movie until college because I'm, I tend to be soft-hearted, and it, it might have scared me, I think, but... At the same time, I think that young adults need to have that kind of character in their life to look up to and say, for example, when she's having a conversation with her boss, Jack Crawford, in the car, after he's sort of had a microaggression moment against her in the coroner's office, and he said to the sheriff of the county or whatever, like, we should talk outside of this room because our conversation isn't is for men is for men and you know her response to that in the car later is it matters what you say they look up to you right and 
Yeah, he kind of flippantly asks Clarice. He goes like, hey, like what I said in there bothers you, right? right. And then instead of having this bit, it would have been easy for Ted Talley to write this whole big scene where it was, you know, Clarice's big Oscar moment where mm-hmm. she goes like, you disrespected yeah. me. You've been using me this whole time with mm-hmm. on Hannibal Lecter's case. Like, how dare you? Like, I am a strong woman. Mm-hmm. But he bypasses all that because that's cliched and implied. Mm-hmm. Like, it's implied that... Right. You know, Clarice doesn't have to blow up to know that that she's right, mad. You saw her reaction in her face, right? When he said that in the corners. Exactly. Office. So all you know, all it is is a simple, and it was in the book too. It's just like it matters what you say, right? And it, it matters what you say. And yeah, yeah, it's and of her maintaining her composure gives her more strength, and Absolutely. and you know, you respect her more, regardless of gender. Like if you yeah. take that out, it's just a. You know, she keeps her professionalism, which is, you know, the point. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think to further that theme, you know, the whole movie keeps putting her into these physical environments where she looks. It's it's impossible to ignore that she looks tiny compared to all of these men. And a lot of times the actors are, I think, probably directed, you know, to put their hands on their hips or to be very obviously masculine. And because she's, you know, she's a student, but she's also very confident in her knowledge and her intelligence. It's so inspiring to watch her not let that bother her. And she can speak her mind and she can be, she can make executive decisions and she can be true to who she is. Because I think something else that I really love about her is she's very feminine. Like you see her in pearls and you see her with earrings, even when she's sweating and running miles and doing all these physical challenges. But you know, she looks very feminine, but she's also very executive. Mm-hmm. And I love the development of that character because that's who I want to be as a professional. Right. I think a good comparison is Emily Blunt's character in Sicario, which I know you haven't seen, but her character is badass and she's working in a male-dominated field, mm-hmm. but she never loses her you know, femininity either. I think so many movies not make the mistake, but tend to use that cliche of a, of a tough woman who essentially is, is just like a, a man, right? Like, like loses all, all is just mm-hmm. like macho and tough and... It's like, no, like, let's actually treat her like a real person. Like, in Sicario, like, she decides to have sex, and, like, that's a whole scene, and, and she's not manipulating this man. It's like, like right. no, that's like, she's just, right. like, she's just having sex, you know? Right. So, yeah. That's... Well, I think, sorry, did I cut you no. off? I think the importance for this character specifically to be a fully-fledged, and and I will also mention going back to Thomas Harris, I'm very impressed by his writing because, you see, you know, sometimes I get a little defensive being a woman going into a book written by a man about the female experience. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, sure. you know, what do you know about this? But mm-hmm. I am really impressed by the way that he wrote her character and the way she was portrayed on screen because if you take the gender out of it, her transformation is from the student to the professional. Yeah. And that is why Lecter is so interested in being her mentor, because I think he sees that she's past all of the outer 
distractions of, you know, gender profiling or demeaning students just because they're not through school yet. And, you know, he sort of sees past all that bullshit and he sees that she's intelligent. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way, Jack Crawford just sort of assigned her because she was a female to go talk to Lucky. And an attractive female that Hannibal liked her. Uh, an attractive female that fit Hannibal Lecter's M.O. for attractive women. Like, Hannibal Lecter liked a specific type of oh, women. Oh, is, is that stated? Because I had a different opinion about why. Like, attractive enough so it would appeal to Hannibal Lecter on two fronts. So I, I actually had a different understanding of why Jack Crawford might have chosen her. I think that he might have seen that she was very guarded and that would entice Lecter to psychoanalyze her. But I thought Jack Crawford didn't want her to be psychoanalyzed. I know. I He prepares her to not give in to that. But I think he's trying to ma- manipulate Lecter into just being interested in someone. Oh, okay. That's, That's how I interpret Yeah, it. no, that, I mean, I think that both are... So he's like, he's kind of manipulating both of them. Yeah. In my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe not consciously but you know uh, yeah. i think it might be a little bit subconscious but i think he's just trying to manipulate he's trying to get something out of the situation mm-hmm. is the bottom line and i think he recognizes that starling is intelligent and you know he does pick her out of her entire class to work on the case but right. i still think that it's so explicit that you know she's one of the only females in this program and all that stuff like i think he just is kind of banking on Lecter being interested in psychoanalyzing her. Gotcha. But anyway, that's just my opinion. But we should get back to the twisted mentorship (laughs) that Lecter and Starling share. Right, yeah. Uh, I think that's so interesting because, and especially with the line, people will say... (laughs) We're in love. People will say we're in love. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and he doesn't I think, have a lisp. <laughs> people will, people will say we're in love. That's he closed my eyes. Anthony Hopkins <laughs> is in the room. You know what? Fun fact about Anthony Hopkins: he's a composer. Oh, did you know he he no. writes incredible music? Huh? That's a fun fact. You should listeners look up Anthony Hopkins' compositions. His music is incredible. But that's beside the point. Although there is that classical music scene when mm-hmm. he's about to rip the faces off the guards anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so again, getting back to the mentorship relationship, I love that because, you know, again, speaking from personal experience, I have found mentors in some very interesting people in my life. And I think the people that I'm really drawn to are the people who not only want to advance my career and take interest in me professionally, but people who also see who I am and who want to mentor me in my profession, but also from a young adult into, you know, a working professional adult. Mm -hmm. And I think that that mentorship is so important and it's not always a role that can be filled in everyone's life. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes it's not even something that people know that they need or should have. And so, again, even though this relationship is a little bit abusive, I really, just purely because, let's not maybe call it abusive, just maybe a little bit unhealthy. Yeah, that's... that's <laughs> so, right. Yeah, I think... You know, it's interesting because you see how much Lecter respects 
Starling and pushes her and doesn't just give her the answers, but makes her work for it because he knows that it'll eventually make her a better FBI agent. Right. Yeah. And his only form of payment is getting to have these therapy sessions, quote unquote, right. with Clarice. Like that's all he has. His only demand when he finally makes a deal with the FBI is to have a, a window with a view. But the chances of that actually happening are slim to none. And Lecter knows that, which is mm -hmm. why he tries to escape. But in the meantime, to pass the time to for him to say sane he's like okay i will give you the information in pieces but you need to work with me you need to give me pieces of your mind which is what again she's been instructed by crawford and shilton to not do because in the past lecter has weaponized that personal right. information and used it against you to mentally and emotionally destroy Right. people yeah. like he can't physically like the senator right he he can't physically eat you if he's in his mask but mm -hmm. he can certainly do some damage to your psyche well and i think uh, you know what maybe i'll leave my comment until we get to lecter because i have a comment about that i totally agree but yeah we're still on starling Mm -hmm. Unless you are done no i think that going on the theme of transformation what this mentorship brings to light for the viewer is Clarice's motivations because they have that big, you know, the Oscar winning speech for both of them was is the titular Silence of the Lamb speech where they're right. talking about that story. And Clarice is explaining about how she had this horrific trauma from her childhood. She realized all the, uh, the lambs were screaming because they knew something was wrong. They were about to be slaughtered. So she tried to pick up one lamb and, and run away with it because the mentality is like if she could just save one, you know, maybe it'll make a difference moving mm -hmm. forward. Maybe she can finally find peace. Mm -hmm. The sheep represents Catherine right. Martin, who's currently, you know, being held by Buffalo Bill. Like mm -hmm. Clar Clarice, she can't save the girls who have already been killed. Right. But by saving one, maybe she can save them all. She or, can sleep or, at night. Yeah, mm -hmm. sleep at night. I feel and, like she made a difference, right? Yeah. And then commenting on what you're saying earlier about her being framed as being smothered and oppressed by men in her profession, I think Jonathan Demme is such an acute eye for visual storytelling that he makes the wise decision that all the men sans Anthony Hopkins is Lecter because he, you know, Anthony Hopkins is only like five, six. All the men, all the rest of the men in the movie are six feet plus. Yeah. Most of the cops yeah, yeah. that are around uh, Jodie Foster are like, I, I would say honestly, six, four, six, five. For sure. All the men literally tower over l yeah. little five, two Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. And it's a great case of of showing don't tell. I mean, that's like the first thing you learn mm -hmm. in screenwriting class is to show not tell. Mm -hmm. And you get the whole me message in certain scenes without them you know, bringing attention to it. There's no scene where Clarice is with her friend, Ardelia, and like there's no scene of her being just like, oh man, all these men are taking these jobs away yeah. from me or none of these men trust me. It's like, that's all implied. Right. Both Jonathan Demi, Ted Talley, they respect the audience enough to know that we come to that conclusion without right. it being spoon-fed to exactly. us. One of the best visuals is the elevator scene right in the beginning. Right. When she's on her way to Crawford's office. And you're right. I mean, she is absolutely tiny compared to the men standing in the... They're probably 
six other men in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And they're, like, quite literally looking down at her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then the last thing I'll say about Jodie Foster's performance, and this is how I thought of Emily Blunt and Sicario in the first place, is that when she's talking to Lecter, even at the end, even, you know, when she finally gets the information or like the final breadcrumb that he leaves for her and that's their their final interaction, she's still nervous talking to her. And you can see she has these little micro movements in her mouth. Her mouth is quivering, her eyes like blink. Mm-hmm. or one eye shudders and it's showing that she's clearly uneasy and again it would have been easy for the direction to Jodie Foster to be like okay you are a badass strong woman like stand up to Lecter mm-hmm. but no Jodie Foster's acting is very nuanced because she is standing up to Lecter and like trying to get information mm-hmm. but You can see deep down in her, at the end of the day, she is still talking to a cannibal serial killer. No matter how sexually charged their conversations may be, or, or, you know, emotionally charged is a better Mm -hmm. term because, you know, it's never explicitly stated Lecter is like, wants to be with, with Clarice sexually. I think his actual sexual identity is kept up in the air throughout the whole series, I believe. Mm. But you can feel that nervous energy. And Jodie Foster's face is saying so much with her saying so little. Mm -hmm. You just know, you know what she's thinking before she even says it. Absolutely. I agree. And the last thing I want to say about her performance is probably my favorite line, which again is in the book and it's in the movie. But when she has to be very clear about her professional line with Dr. Chilton Mm -hmm. and he kind of is flirting with her and clearly not taking her very seriously. And she goes, I want to UVM. It's not charm school. (laughs) (laughs) Not charm school. Yeah. You know, and again, that just, it's a line that I honestly wish I could use in a conversation where someone's not taking me very seriously. And I just I just want to give Thomas Harris and Jodie Foster and Jonathan Demme, I guess, just many thanks for putting that kind of bite into this female character's development. Mm-hmm. She's so smart. Like that she's so quick with that comment. And the other thing that I think it shows how quickly she comes up with that is, you know, I think as a woman, there are a lot of ways that you sort of learn to be subtly defensive because if you can't be physically defensive towards someone who's making you uncomfortable, sometimes those mental defenses can really come in handy. And sometimes there are lines that you can sort of pre-rehearse or you just sort of know, okay, I'm in this kind of situation, so I can use this line to mentally defense this unwanted attention. And so I think it works in two ways. Again, it shows she's extremely intelligent and it also shows that she's been in these situations before and she has just learned how to defend herself. I just love that. Yeah. No matter how much practice she has, nothing could prepare her to face off against <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. Let's let's move <laughs> on to Sir Anthony Hopkins. Oh my goodness. What can we say <laughs> that hasn't already been said? I think the story of Anthony Hopkins's rise is pretty cool. I mean, he was kind of on the decline in his career. He was in his 50s. He 
you know, was a British actor, but he had a lot of, you know, work in plays. But he, oh, I was gonna ask if you, yeah, I think I remember. And yeah, and Jack. and before this, like he was in the Elephant Man, which was you know David Lynch's mm. movie, and that got some acclaim. But Anthony Hopkins himself, really, you know, he was in the part of his career where Hollywood's just like, okay, you're gonna play the dad or the old man. I was gonna say, or for women when you're forty. Oh, for for <laughs> women, it's even worse. It's like thirty five, and and. Once you cross that mark, you're like, you're going to play the mom until the rest of time. Shout but, out to the women who've overcome that. Yes. Like Amy Poehler and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, the, obviously there are exceptions, but yeah, but back to Anthony Hopkins, he gets this role and he was not the first choice for Lecter, nor was Jodie Foster for Clarice. Mm. The people up for that role were... Michelle Pfeiffer was Jonathan Demme's original choice, but Michelle Pfeiffer uh-huh. read the script and was like, this is too dark, I'm out. And then... And for those reasons, I'm out. out. Yeah. And then Jonathan Demme wanted Meg Ryan. Same thing happened. And then the studio wanted Laura Dern, hmm. but then Jonathan Demme thought she was too young, which she was at, at the time. And then all throughout that period, Jodie Foster kept on coming back to the studio and Jonathan Demme asking, begging for this role. So she finally got it. She never, she never missed a day during the pre-production of this movie asking to be, and then she finally won it. So that's a, a great lesson on perseverance and sticking to a goal that it can work out. And, and the same thing had happened for uh, Anthony Hopkins. He wanted this role, but the studio had wanted other big names. Mm-hmm. Like Gene Hackman at one point was attached to do it. And they were talking about Brian Cox, who played Hannibal Lecter in uh, 1989 or 88, Manhunter, uh-huh. which is not connected to this movie at all. It's you know a completely separate thing, even though it's based on a Thomas Harris novel. But... Yeah, none of those ideas worked, and so they ended up going with Anthony Hopkins, and of course, he ended up turning one of the most memorable, Mm -hmm. greatest performances of all time. I mean, next to another one of the greatest performances of all time with Jodie Foster. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's just incredible how magnetic he is on screen how every single word he says is perfectly placed and he has these big blue eyes that you you know you feel like you're under a trance kind of like a vampire that was one of the this is one of those fun facts that i don't know is true but apparently like anthony hopkins watched vampire movies and how you know when vampires are putting people under their spell mm-hmm. you know how they look deep into you basically mm-hmm. into your soul and they don't blink i don't know if that's i don't know if that's true but when you watch anthony hopkins he's he's not playing a human he's playing dracula and he's putting you under a trance and and he's talking in a way that no human talks anthony hopkins you're welcome to reach out to us and confirm or deny this rumor this rumor you. that you modeled your performance off of At vampire Film movies podcast <laughs> Yeah, but... Um, well, do you want to talk about how the camera work really goes into developing his character and everyone's character, right. but the way that it really furthered his character development? Yeah, well, of course, this movie has these classic close-ups mm-hmm. of characters' faces where every character other than Clarice, they are shown in close-ups. Mm-hmm. Talk Fujimoto, who has shot like The Sixth Sense and Signs and other you know M. Night Shyamalan movies, great cinematographer... 
Oh, he oh he was on the electrical department on Star Wars oh, too, so, okay. which was pretty. I, I mean, that was a fun fact, but no, it it, it was. Shoot it, yeah. I mean, he he wasn't the cinematographer, but right. he helped with it. I mean, every every role is important. Yes. Let's get that <laughs> clear. <laughs> but his camera work that just locks you in. You're literally staring actors in the face, mm-hmm. and it's certainly a distinct visual style. But it's not like show-offy. It's not mm-hmm. artsy. It never feels like Jonathan Demme is bringing attention to his style. It's all in service of the story of putting you in Clarice Starling's POV. Right. Because like like, it, like there's not a shot from like below and to the left of the jaw. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. There are no Dutch angles or anything like that. Oh, there's is that a, what it's called? There. Well, that is a term. Oh, gotcha. But there's a, a distinct style, which is the style is Clarice's POV. So every single character looks directly down the barrel of the camera. And then Clarice, Jodie Foster, is the only actor who looks, um, who doesn't look down the camera. She's always looked slightly off to the left or mm-hmm. to the right. And especially with the scenes of Hannibal, with Hannibal Lecter, I mean... They have about, what, three or four encounters throughout the mm-hmm. whole movie. But the camera is just locked in there. Mm-hmm. And Anthony Hopkins is looking into your soul. Yeah. And it is as haunting as it is impressive. I mean, it truly is frightening. But it is so... You're watching a performance that is so great mm-hmm. that you can't help but... I don't know. Sometimes I sometimes even laugh because... You know, it's just kind of an involuntary experience of I'm watching something so cool and so iconic that, like, all you can do is just laugh at how great it is. I don't know. Yeah, it's enjoyable to watch something so good. Yeah. And Anthony Hopkins learning about his preparation just as an actor in general is fascinating because what he does is he becomes obsessed with the script that he's in. So whatever movie he's in, he would read a script reported like hundreds of times and and memorize everyone's lines Mm -hmm. so he when it came down to filming like he knew everyone's lines everyone's blocking Mm -hmm. how the scene would go at any certain day so he would become he had to make his his role an obsession of him like he would Mm -hmm. literally go crazy kind of going over these roles and that especially applied to Hannibal Lecter and it creates a weird kind of thing where he is a cannibal serial killer. Mm-hmm. Like, he has killed... Normally in his past, as stated in the books, that he only kills people who are rude. Like, mm-hmm. he's not, like... He, he's not just killing around innocent people, but... Or, or honestly, just a nuisance as well. Right. People he thinks are dumb. Which, right. you know. But it's a different story when... It, during his jailbreak, when he's forced to kill those two guards... And, I mean, we don't really learn anything about the guards, but they seemed like okay people. Well, they seem cocky, though. I think that I, they're, yeah. they're also taking a lot of cues from how Dr. Chilton, Chilton has treated him, right? Right. Because, so I, I think that he, they just are a little cocky and a little disrespectful. So right. that's why, I mean, obviously he does have to kill them to escape, mm-hmm. but I don't think it causes him any concern because he doesn't respect them yeah. as... His intellectual equals. You're right, exactly. I, I agree with that. And my larger point being is that you're kind of rooting for him to escape. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you need to step back and think about it for a second. Again, he is a serial killer who eats people. Yeah. Why am I rooting this guy on? Yeah. Like, it's badass and satisfying to see him outsmart 
the the cops and yeah. to have this I mean brutal absolutely brutal plan to yeah. to hang up someone's top half on the jail cell to distract them and to, then to use the other cop's face to put it on as to make him think that and he's his the corpse as a decoy right yeah it's so smart so well done I mean that whole scene is just textbook great directing yeah. i mean having the having all the cops wait for the elevator to come down being like oh shit and then have it stop at number three i mean that oh it couldn't be more tense and the blood dripping yeah oh my god i mean i mean that scene alone I, it's, it's my favorite in this film so well done on every aspect and to end on anthony hopkins because basically all we can really say about this guy is he's a great actor he, he did a great job and of him saying i'm having a friend for dinner at the end the final phone call and then seeing Chilton get off the plane in that Bahamas. in the Bahamas is one of the most satisfying ending lines exactly of all time right and his delivery is just perfect for that I totally agree I think the complexity of his character as a likable serial killer is it has been revisited Especially nowadays where I think America, I can't speak for other countries, but Americans have a deep interest in true crime and likable serial killers or likable, you know, antiheroes. Yeah. Uh, for example, I was thinking of Dexter. You know, he's, right. a, he's the anti-hero who kills bad guys. And Lecter doesn't go as far as to do research and make sure these people are bad people. I mean, yeah. he kills a patient of his because he's basically just upset that the patient won't... That the patient isn't interested in his own emotional development, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when Lecter sees that people are done transforming in their lives or developing he becomes done with them. He just thinks, yeah. you know what, you're a waste of time and you're a waste of space. So because I enjoy eating the human body, you are the person that I'm going to kill next. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting because he is not a character that goes through much growth in this film. He has pretty much a singular goal and it's basically give me more freedom than I have right now because I'm being disrespected and I don't deserve it. Or basically gamble your intelligence against mine and let's see if I can break free. Mm -hmm. I can escape. And he obviously does that. And, you know, I think it's so interesting that he's not interested in changing. He's not interested in not being a cannibal and not killing people because the first thing that he does when he gets out of jail is he decides to hunt Chilton. And that's not in the book. He doesn't go after Chilton. He basically just sort of retires. Well, in the book, he writes a memo to Chilton saying for him to, to uh, not get comfortable. Right, in. right. I think it's implied, though, that he does go to kill Chilton. Maybe. I guess, I guess the way that I thought of that was he was almost trying to push Chilton to change. And he was saying, if you don't change, I'm going to kill you right so he was giving him a little bit of a leash but only because he wanted to keep his thumb over children <laughs> keep his heel sort of over children right right well he said i believe the line is i'll be seeing you soon so honestly i think he's a smart enough person right. where he will he will he would find children right no, no matter course. what yeah so i guess i guess 
Right. So what I, I guess maybe I should say that the movie takes it a little bit further. Right. Where not only has Lecter found Chilton, he's in fact where Chilton will be before Chilton arrives yeah. there. Like that's the level of mind game that Lecter is playing at. And it's so funny to watch Chilton, who's been so disrespectful to Starling and sexually inappropriate and has, again, he has almost abused prisoners in his care. You know, I mean, he hates Lecter, not because he's a cannibal, but because he knows he's smarter than him. And so he intentionally does demeaning things like putting the television program on. Yeah, too loud. Evangelical television program that he knows Lecter is going to get angry at. And it's so satisfying to see that kind of character get taken out in such an ironic way. So again, I mean, I guess going back to my transformation idea, like Lecter is probably one of the only characters that doesn't really change. But I think in a in a strange way, it's just because he knows that he's he's an older person and he's come to terms with who he is and he's okay with it. And so he's like, you know, I, I'm happy with who I am. And I think like, maybe that's as a psychiatrist, that was his goal with all of his patients was to push them to the point where they could be emotionally healthy and stable and happy with who they were. And if people couldn't transition into their best self, he was like, you know what, (laughs) I'm done with you being my patient. I'm going to eat you. Yeah, and we've arrived back at Clarice Starling, where he sees that this is a person who is matches his intelligence somewhat, mm-hmm. and clearly wants to be better and work on herself. Whether she knows it or not, mm-hmm. she knows that she wants to metaphorically hear the silence of the lambs, which means mm-hmm. saving Catherine Martin. And he could outright tell her who has captured Catherine Martin because he knows mm-hmm. the right. whole time. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. Or he deduces it very quickly. Mm-hmm. But he gives it out in pieces so this transformation can mm-hmm. take place. Which is, again, which is why you like him so much. Because even though <laughs> cannibal serial killer who kills three cops or two cops in an ambulance paramedic, right, right. Um, you still like him because it's like, wow, he really like contributed to Clarice's growth as a character and she's probably going to be promoted because of him and a fun fact at the end of the movie when Lecter calls Clarice at the FBI party when they saved Catherine Martin they're cutting into an FBI cake Mm -hmm. and the slice cuts around the word justice Mm -hmm. and then the first slice that is served is that justice slice so justice is literally being served oh my god shut up I didn't even justice (laughs) is served that is so funny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, that's, that's a really cool funny. thing. But yeah, let's transition to the person who has captured Catherine Martin. Mm-hmm. One of Lecter's former patients. Or one of Lecter's former patients lovers. Right. right. Yeah. Buffalo Bill. Or that was the name given to him by the media. His real name, James, not James, James Gum. Played by Ted Levine. Yes. Who's wonderful. And all I want to say about Ted Levine is number one, great performance. Number two, all I can think of when I hear his voice is Stottlemyre from Monk. I love right. that show. I love him on that show. He's a great actor. Yeah, he's a fantastic actor. Unfortunately, was a little bit typecast because of this oh, really? movie. Just he's been I mean, in a lot? I mean, no, I mean, he's been in a lot, but a lot of times he's playing the creepy guy, which is oh, kind of... Wow. 
Well, he's the good guy in Monks. So. Right, yeah. That, that's cool there. But he was in Shutter Island, as we talked about. Right. He was the prison warden there. Oh, I and about he has a great little small part in that. Yeah. So. He's great as Stottlemyre. Yeah, but Buffalo Bill. I mean, we already talked about two of the most famous performances in a thriller. Now, this is number three, one of the most famous yeah. performances of all time so unsettling and forever seared into his voice is forever seared into my eardrums it puts the lotion on its skin scene which comes right after the scene where Catherine martin's mom the senator is talking on tv to buffalo bill saying Catherine martin and ardelia she says like oh she, that's so smart the more she says her name the more buffalo bill will view her as a person mm-hmm. as opposed to an object and then the very next scene he's grappling with that dilemma of he's trying to say like it it puts lotion on its skin and, and he very clearly looks away from her and doesn't make eye contact because she's saying like i want my mom and she's yeah. crying and then he he's yeah struggling to look at her because yeah of this war that's happening inside his mind of this is a person how can you do this but no it's like i'm using her for her skin it's an it it's easier for me to kill her if it's an it and that's where i think the book just provides more insight into uh-huh. the character because you you re- you see that inner struggle of him saying that it's just easier for him to make the suit out of mm-hmm. people if you take the human aspect yeah right, dehumanize person, it yeah, yeah. And there's a bit of a controversy with this Mm -hmm. character because when it was released, the trans community and the the gay community were not happy or or parts of those communities were not happy because they were like, how could you depict someone from our communities as a serial killer? Like, we already have a lot that we're dealing with. This could be harmful for... Rightfully so. Yeah, rightfully so. And I think both the book and the movie, they make the efforts to say that this is not a pattern for trans people, that Buffalo Bill is actually not trans. He thinks he is, but really it's a psychosis where he just wants to be the opposite of himself. And he thinks he wants to be a woman and he equates womanhood with putting on this their skin but but really womanhood is is much more than that and that's all i can really speak of the controversy obviously we're not a part of those communities what i think there is a a great podcast where there is a trans woman who talks about her view Mm -hmm. on and and that's kind of the valid opinion that you should really heed you should really listen to it's um the podcast is the blank check podcast and emily vanderweff is her name she was a guest on the sons of the lambs episode so look up blank check podcast sons of the lambs and i think that she gives a really good perspective Mm -hmm. as to not necessarily why buffalo bill's depiction is not offensive because it's just hard to you know deal with this kind of topic and right and i think again like danny said the book and the movie do explicitly say that in lecter's professional opinion buffalo bill is not a transsexual however Again, that is a professional opinion. Yeah. You know, and so I I also understand how that line is very difficult to walk. And even though it is explicitly said, like, it's someone's opinion about someone else who has not personally met that other person. And like Danny said, since we are, we try to be the best allies that we can, but we're not part of this community. But also, you know, I, I want to talk about this book because I 
see myself in one of the characters, you know, yeah. Starling. So, you know, it's really hard sometimes to talk about books that don't necessarily hold up in a lot of ways now that we're in 2020, but that's our concession is please go listen to this other podcast episode because she talks about it better than we could. You're right. Yeah. And it's certainly, I understand the controversy a little bit because, I mean, there is that famous scene with Buffalo Bill tucking in his genitals and wearing lipstick and no matter how many times you tell the audience Buffalo Bill is not a transsexual it's like well he's clearly trying mimicking a woman and what Jonathan Demi and everyone couldn't predict is that this movie would be a smashing success so what happens when your movie is a success is more people watch it naturally and you have more people uh, interpreting yeah, the of movie, course. So. Yeah, and I, like, yeah, it's not, you know, I'm not going to say it's not offensive because I'm sure to a lot of people it is, and I totally understand that perspective. But yeah, I think, you know, if we want to sort of take a step back and talk about the transition, yeah. not sexually of, of Buffalo Bill, but emotionally, um, I really liked what you said about how trauma in his childhood has made him want to be the opposite of what he identifies as. Right. And I think that there are a few hints that he identifies as a man, or at least sometimes identifies a man, because in the background of his house, there are pictures of him with a stripper, and there is some very sexually charged imagery in his house. So I think, again, like if you think about how gender is sort of conventionally interpreted, I think his understanding is if I'm a man and I don't want to be who I am, the opposite of this is to be feminine. Mm-hmm. And that, again, because he was mentally unstable, that made him take steps rather than to, you know, healthily perhaps transition into a woman if that's what he wanted. It sort of made him take steps to unhealthily become yeah. female. And I think that's sort of because it it's difficult, you know, when I was first reading the book and Lecter was saying he's not a transsexual. I didn't quite understand what he meant by that. Yeah. Because I was like, but but he is. And, he, and you know, with someone with 2020 vision, I guess, I'm saying, well, but James Gum pursued sexual affirmation surgery. So James is trans. And yeah. So I didn't quite understand that. But the way you said it and the way after doing a little more reading about it, I realized that, oh, I understand he just had the the social convention of female in his head. Mm-hmm. And that was the social opposite yeah. of what he felt. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was pursuing that transition, quote unquote. So, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really interesting comment on gender. And, you know, we've talked about this through the episode, but I think that Thomas Harris had some really interesting ideas about rejecting social identity and social constructs of gender. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I just think it's a very interesting comment on society's assumptions about gender, especially since the book was written in the 80s and the movie came out in the 90s. It certainly brought up a discussion. I think Thomas Harris was subtly trying to get the conversation started. Well, I think, yeah, I think what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, if anyone reads the book, you'll find out that James Gum applied for gender affirmation 
surgery at three different hospitals and was rejected. Yeah. That application was rejected. And I actually, I didn't know that you would have to prove that you had been dressing as your gender identity for two years. That's, that's so interesting and sad. And, you know, how would you even prove that? It's just so discriminatory. And it also makes me think, so, you know, plenty of people know that Danny and I are engaged and I was doing research about how to get a marriage certificate. And I was looking just for kicks into how much a common law marriage costs in California. And I was looking into the cost and requirements to prove that you've been, you're eligible to get a common law marriage. And on the city's website, it literally says you basically just have to say you've been living together for yeah. 10 years. Like, so just the, I'm just thinking about the, the red tape that people go through to be able to be eligible for gender affirmation surgery versus something with common law marriage. You can just say, yep, yep. my partner and I have been living together for 10 years, so 38 bucks. Let's get a common law marriage. It's just, I mean, I'm laughing, but it makes me just sad. And, and, you know, I think we've come far since 1988. And, you know, again, we live in California and I think we sort of live in a little bit of a bubble, but there's still just a lot of conversations to be had and a lot of acceptance that still needs to be extended to that community. So absolutely. If you're listening to this and you don't agree, then go yourself no absolutely i think i think that's fine no, to say no. but no if you're listening to this and you don't agree you need to go do research and then come around to the correct decision that you agree and if you still don't agree then go fuck yourself again um <laughs> all right well yeah, that's the thing uh, i will this is the last thing i'll say about buffalo bill because i mean all three of the characters we've talked about three of the best performances of all time you know what a villain performance is great when it's truly satisfying to see that villain die. Mm. And when the catharsis that comes when Clarice finally shoots Buffalo Bill in the dark while he has the night vision goggles on mm. is so immense and satisfying. I mean, it couldn't have been a better so ending. Tense. She came so close to being killed. And you learn in the book that Buffalo Bill hesitates because he wants her hair. Right. Yeah. To make a wig. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's an interesting thing that I think could have been a flaw in the movie Mm -hmm. because it's one of those things where he can see her and she can't see him and he doesn't take the shot as soon as she's clearly in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. And in that way, you know, if you purely just watch the film, it's like, oh, well, of course she's going to survive because she's the main character. But Right. There's a little bit more depth to that hesitation. And he, you can see he also sort of reaches out to touch her hair. And that's sort of the clue to people who have read the book that there's a reason for that. And again, it just, it just, it's hard to draw those lines because he does some really sick things. And I think there are probably other ways to show that he's trying to be the opposite of himself. Yeah you know and not have it have to do with gender um it's just that's just the choice i guess that the author made um and it i think there are some just unfortunate bits of fallout because gender and identity have very charged emotions connected Mm -hmm. to that 
for sure. Amen. Well, great movie, Jonathan Demme. May he rest in peace, one of the great directors of all time. He directed the concert documentary of Justin Timberlake, his latest tour with the Tennessee Kids. It's on Netflix right now. It's incredible. Is it experience? Or is it different? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, he was, yeah, the, back in, the tour was five or six years ago, but the documentary came out about four years ago right before Demi passed. And yeah, it's, it's on Netflix now. Even if you're not a fan of Timberlake, I mean, who's not a fan of Which Justin we Timberlake? Are. Oh, I but, mean. Yeah, go go watch that. <laughs> Big fans of JT over here. Uh, but uh, I mean, this is kind of, it's kind of boring, but I think the ratings are, for us are gonna be pretty easy. I mean, both book and the movie, four out of four, mm-hmm. it's kind of, they're similar. They're, they're both effective and great in the movie like a great adaptation visualizes the best parts of the novel and Mm -hmm. adds its own flair and Mm -hmm. it's great so an all-timer same with you totally agree yeah and do you want to i have one more wrapping up comment that i forgot yeah go lay it on us so my final comment other than the fact that i love this book and i love this movie is that there's a great message that not that's not necessarily explicitly said but i think again with my 2020 goggles i kind of tease this out a little bit but most people active on the internet are very familiar with the phrase fuck politeness for females and I really saw that in the scene where Catherine is abducted because James Gum intentionally dresses up like he needs help he wears a fake cast and he's struggling with this big armchair or lazy boy and even though she is so close to home and she has her hands completely filled with groceries, she still, and you can see she's uncomfortable, she still goes over and asks him if he needs help. And not only that, but she gets into the van first before him and sort of backs into the van. So she's already trapped. And I think that scene is really important because, you know, she is a victim and I'm not victim blaming at all. I'm just saying that it's really important for women, you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable in a situation to say, fuck politeness, I'm not comfortable and to try to find an exit strategy. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just kind of thought that was interesting and uh, hashtag fuck fuck politeness. (laughs) Let's get that trending on Twitter. I'm sure her parents will be (laughs) proud. All right. We'll see you on the next one. This has been a great episode. Welcome to season three. We've got more awesome podcasts on the way. All right. Take it easy. Care. (laughs) Yep. Nailed it. We still got it.